0: Okay, everyone, welcome to Great Jewish Personalities. When we left off last week, we had just arrived in the great city of Yavne, and the Jewish people are in a really bad spot. The temple's destroyed, lots of Jews and lots of Jewish communities are decimated, the crown jewel of Jewish living, the temple, is destroyed as well. And Yavne, we see, becomes this beacon of light that's going to infuse life and vitality into the Jewish nation. Now, it's important that at this time, there's a tremendous shift in focus and in leadership of the people. Beforehand, we had all these different groups vying for leadership. We had the Sadducees and the Essenes and the Hellenists and the Jewish Christians. All these different various groups, each one of them trying to jockey for a position in the leadership of the Jewish people. Um, the noted authorities uh, and individuals not just groups that are leading the people also you have the Torah scholars and you have the nationalists and the bryonim and the zealots and all these different groups that are capturing the mind of the jewish people and indeed if you go back in history you see that you had different prophets and you have kings and you have high priests and local leaders of the royal. everything overnight almost changes from this point onward for the next several hundred years the only authorities, certainly in the line of Israel, that are going to lead the people are the Torah scholars, which in a weird way is a little bit of a silver lining in the aftermath of tragedy that now there's more unity and focus and uh, leadership that is true to Torah values, and that really was centered in the city and the convention of rabbis in Yavne. And we see indeed that from this point onward, Yavna really becomes the seat of leadership for the people. That's where the sages were. The sages were Torah leaders, religious leaders, but also political leaders. We'll see today as well some of the various trips that they had to Rome. They would send delegations to Rome. It wouldn't be the polit- politicians. It wouldn't be the kings or the local leaders, the mayors. It would be the rabbis, the greatest rabbis of the generations. They were also the political leaders, and they were the ones that were go to intercede on behalf of the people with the Romans. Every Jewish community... They would have a group of promising scholars, they would send them to Yavna to go join the collected cadre of uh, of great scholars in Yavna at the time. Now, who was the leadership of Yavna? So we meet a very interesting and tremendously talented in every way a group of, of leaders. Uh, if you remember last time we spoke about Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaka, who was the elderly sage of the people of the time, he established Yavne, he ensured that all the rabbis were able to escape to Yavne away from the inferno of Jerusalem and elsewhere, but after Yavne was established, he quickly left as to not overshadow the leader, the young leader, the Nasi was Rabbi Gamliel, and Rabbi Gamliel, he's the Nasi, so he's the recognized authority, and he wasn't wasn't just a political role. It was really a role of scholarship. He was a great Torah scholar, tremendous scholar. There's many, many uh, uh, teachings of his found in the mission of the Talmud. And he was uh, chiefly responsible for the Jewish people. He was the Nasi, and he was part of a long line all the way from Hillel for hundreds of years of nasiim, which were quasi-teens, or princes of the Jewish people, from the the, uh, house of David, from the family of David. Another great leader is Rabbi Eliezer. Rabbi Eliezer, his full name is Rabbi Eliezer ben Horkinus, uh, otherwise known as Rabbi Eliezer Hagadol. Uh, He was one of the prime students of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. If you remember Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, when he was talking about his five major students, he said that if you take all the students that had all the great sages of Israel, you put them on one side of the scale, you put Rabbi on the other side of the scale, he would outweigh them. And he was the Chacham. The Chacham means he was the recognized Torah authority and the greatest scholar, and indeed the heir, the spiritual heir of Rabbi Yochanan ben Now He has a very interesting batch story. His father was inordinately wealthy, and he wasn't much of a Torah scholar and rebbelezer had a tremendous drive almost a maniacal drive to torah we're told in uh, in the Pirate of elezer which is in the midrash that at the age of 28 he decided to dedicate himself uh, to himself full time to torah study now his family a very wealthy family very aristocratic family his father's name is hortenos so obviously he he didn't, he didn't even have a jewish name and he was a wealthy landowner very wealthy uh, family and this prized son of his decides to go to Jerusalem to go study with the rabbis, and he was very disappointed with that. And Rabbi Lezer goes and he studies under Rabbi Yochanim at Zakkai. Eventually, he rises to the top to be his prime student. And concurrently, his father is a little bit disappointed with the fact that his son now is going to waste his time with the rabbis studying. So he makes this trip to Jerusalem to go and to formalize the papers, disowning his son Eliezer, from his inheritance. And that uh, would ensure that, you know, if he's not going to work, if he wants to just sit and study, let him sit and study, but he's not going to have a portion in the estate. So he comes and arrives at Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, and they tell him that, oh, this person that you're meeting, he's the father of the great Rabbi Eliezer, your student of Eliezer. He says, we'll make it a big big party. He makes a big party, and he's sitting there, and all the great people of Jerusalem are there, and... Rabbi Eliezer, he's Rabbi, Rabbi Yochum, Zankar calls him and says, I want you to go give a lecture in front of everyone. Do you have, how can I give a lecture in front of everyone? I have my teacher here, I have all the great rabbis here, I have all the great leaders of Jerusalem here. I can't go. And Finally, he agreed to go. And the describes the lecture uh, that he gives. He gives this trent, just amazing lecture and... He he's almost from a different world. The Midrash describes that his face was as bright as the sun. There was a, a an eminence. There was a a glow that he had, the spiritual glow of Olam Abba was just permeating from him. Everyone there was just totally spellbound by this performance. And when he finished, Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai went and kissed him on his forehead and says to him, "'Praiseworthy are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob.'" that someone like this, someone like Yezer, came from their descendants. And then he goes over to Rabbi Rebelezer's father, and says, by the way, that guy, you don't recognize him, he's been here for a couple of years and grew a nice long beard, he's actually your son. He's like, what? That's my son. And he says, you know what? Let me change the documentation. I'm not disowning him, in fact, I'm giving him the entirety of my estate. So he tries to sign off the entirety of the estate, and Rebelezer says, no, just give me the portion that I would have had As, as if, you know, along with all the rest of your sons. And indeed, for the rest of his life, he's going to be very wealthy, which is always interesting to see the dynamics where you have the great scholar who's wealthy. On the other hand, his, uh, his primary colleague is Rabbi Yehoshua will meet it as well, the other great leader of Yavne, who was very, very poor. And in the society of that time, and indeed the way it really seems ought to be, people are judged as their merits, it was a meritocracy. Thus, Rabbi Eliezer was very wealthy and has, could potentially wield a lot of influence. Uh, he was considered an equal to Rabbi Yehoshua, who was very, very poor. And uh, because they were both great in Torah, that's what they—that's how they were valued. Rabbi Eliezer lived in Lud. He married uh, a woman by the name of Ima Shalom. She is the sister of Rabbi Yomiel. So Rabbi Gamliel is the nasi. Rabbi Eliezer is the chacham. And, and, and Rabbi Eliezer is married to Rabbi Eliezer's sister, her name her name was Ima, Ima Shalom, and she's also the daughter of the previous prince. Because remember the the princehood that's going uh, in a succession in biological succession, Hillel, Hillel's son, uh, Rabbi Rabbi Eliezer, his son is Shimon, and this his great grandson is Rabbi Eliezer the second, Rabbi Gamliel, and uh, his brother-in-law is Rabbi Eliezer. Now, the Talmud testifies about Rabbi Lezer, some unbelievable qualities that he had. It says that he never allowed someone to precede him to the synagogue, to the house of study. So, if, if the learning schedule starts at 9 a.m., he was always there beforehand. And if some guy says, ah, I'm going to get there at 8.45 and I'll beat him, he says, ah, oh, no, okay, I'll get at the 8.40. He always was the first to leave, first to arrive and last to leave like his teacher before him. He didn't sleep in the house of scholarship. Never in his life did he have any idle chit-chat. And also, he never taught Torah that was not taught to him by his teacher. He was a vessel, a a funnel of his his teacher's Torah, and that's what he taught for. And it's really interesting because there's another statement in the Talmud that seems to be in direct opposition to this. This Talmud says elsewhere, that Rebbe Eliezer would give lectures and he would say teachings that no ear heard before. He said things that were totally innovative, innovative ideas that were never taught before. So on one hand, he taught only things that he heard from his teacher. On the other hand, he taught things that no one had ever heard before. The answer is that he was such a consummate student that even his own independent Torah thoughts that he developed on his own were in the same manner, in the same flavor, as if Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai, his teacher, could have said that. He incorporated the approach of his teacher so that even the novel Torah insights were as almost as if Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai himself was the one teaching him. And the third of the triumvirate of Yavne is Rabbi Yehoshua, Rabbi Shuban Chananya, And he like Rabbi Lezer was a student of Rabbi Yochanan Metzakai. he was called the Avbeizdin, the head of the Sanhedrin and he had a very different backstory because the Talmud tells that when he was yet a, just a tiny little baby and he was in a little stroller his mom, his mother would bring him into the house, into the yeshiva and even though he didn't understand anything as a little baby, but The reason why is she said, because let his ears cleave to words of Torah. And that's why he was almost like consecrated from birth, so to speak, to be dedicated entirely to Torah. In fact, when Rabbi Yochanan Zaka is enumerating the qualities of his students, when he gets to Rabbi Yehoshua, of his five major students, when he gets to Rabbi Yehoshua, he says, Rabbi Yehoshua, Ashrei Yoladato, Praiseworthy are those that gave birth to him, i.e. his mother, who set him on a path of Torah scholarship. And he, unlike Rabbi Eliezer, was very poor. He lived in a small little hut. And despite being one of the very greatest uh, Torah leaders in, in Torah greatness, in, in every field of Torah greatness, being a great statesman, he was uh, always the one who would be uh, on the debate team, the Talmud records, numerous debates that he had with the great Roman philosophers of his day. Whenever they wanted someone to represent the Jewish people, it was always Rabbi Yehoshua. Uh, despite being a recognized, noted leader, he lived in ter- terrible, deep poverty, and he had made a humble livelihood uh, by making needles. He would make le- needles. And the Talmud describes that the walls of his tiny little hut were blackened with the soot of the charcoal fire that he used to make his needles. Now, these were the primary leaders of Yavne, but also Rabbi Akiva already arrives at Yavne at the time, and there's many, many hundreds of students over there, and Torah again is beginning beginning to boom and flourish in Israel. Now, although they had the rights from the Romans to gather and to study, they had to tread very lightly, especially at the beginning. And in fact, when Yavne was beginning to burgeon, they, the Romans, were a little bit wary of this growing, you know, presence, so to speak, that the Jewish people had. They were, you know, the Jews were notorious for always rebelling, and the Jews had just pulled off the greatest rebellion in the history of the Roman Empire with the Great Revolt and the Battle of Jerusalem and the Battle of Israel, and now they see that the Jews are once again have life to them. And they're led led again by this leader, by Rabbi Gamaliel. So even though Vespasian had committed to not go after Rabbi Gamaliel and his family, they put out an edict for his arrest and execution. The Talmud tells what happened. This is the Talmud in in Tinus, page 29. When Turnus Rufus, the wicked, Turnus Rufus is one of the Roman leaders, when he was plowing the temple, they made an edict, the decree on Rabbi Gamliel, that they should kill him. Now what does it mean that he was plowing the temple? They destroyed the temple. The temple was built upon a huge mountain, Temple Mount. In order to just root out any hope of the Jewish rebellion and resistance, they undertook a project to actually plow the mountain, to take the plateau and lower it, and to give the ultimate shame that not only destroying the building that the temple was and that was the center of Jewish life, but are also going to raise the actual mountain that it was standing on. So they made this edict on Remedom Liel. And there's, you know, the, the, the Roman official who was in charge of executing that order, he came to the House of Scholarship and he kind of announced, oh, by the way, I happen to be here uh, with this document that says that uh, I'm supposed to catch, capture, and execute Robert Gamaliel. Rabbi Gamaliel gets, gets, you know, he hears about this and he quickly hides. And the person comes to him in privacy and says to him, listen, I want to rescind this order, but you have to promise me that I'm going to be granted a portion of the world to come if I do that. Rabbi Gamaliel promises him. He climbs up onto the top of the roof. He jumps off the roof, commits suicide. And in Roman rule, when someone who was the bearer of a decree, when he dies in the act of executing that order, then the decree is rescinded. So Rabbi Gamliel, the decree to Rabbi Gamliel was rescinded, and that person indeed merited to have a portion in Olam Haba, which really shows you that although the Romans were very hostile to the Jewish people, There was still that feeling of of deep connection, or at least amongst many individuals, that they knew the Jews were right and had something really special, and their Torah made sense and their Torah was true, and thus we see an instance where someone is willing to give up their lives uh, to ensure that Jewish continuity will exist and to secure themselves a place in al which is really remarkable. Now, over the course of the next few decades of Yavne, there are going to be ups and downs and ebbs and flows in the security of the uh, community at Yavne. There are going to be several times where they're going to have to flee Yavne, or at least disband, and the rabbis are going to split up into various different groups and go to different cities because the Romans were very wary. We have a thousand rabbis coming together, very powerful, impactful great visionary leaders, and that was something that they were very uh, concerned about, so they would sometimes go underground uh, as well. Now, the first mission that they undertook after the temple was destroyed uh, was to address the more immediate problems facing the people and to try to rescue the remnants of the people of, of, of Israel from the Roman persecution. So in fact, the Talmud tells that these three leaders, Rabbi Gamaliel, Rabbi and Rabbi Yeshua, were sent to Rome as a delegation to visit Titus and to petition him to alleviate the oppressions of Rome towards the Jewish people. And they got to Rome and they made a big impact upon the local populace. These were very impressive people. And indeed we learn about what happened um, to some of the people of the nobility and aristocracy of Rome that we have a list of people that actually converted because of their encounter with these great people. Now, before they got to Rome, and, or before they got to speak to Titus, he was assassinated by his brother, uh, but that kind of shows what the role that they undertook. They undertook a role to, uh, initially at least, to try to intercede upon, on behalf of the Jewish people and to alleviate their pain and suffering. At this time, we also see a... a intense, concentrated effort to weed out, to ferret out the Judeo-Christians. Remember, the Judeo-Christians were a relatively new offshoot of the Jewish nation proper, the general Jewish nation. And they were Jews who, on top of observance of Torah law, also had a belief, a mistaken belief, that their hero was the Messiah and he's dead, he's coming back, whatever variety of that idea they held at the time. And this was a big problem because these people outwardly would behave as Jews, they would participate in all, they would do the mitzvahs and they were Jews by every objective or perceivable manner, yet they were secretly closet Judeo-Christians and they had beliefs that were against the very foundations of our religion. So you have a problem. You have an enemy almost with, from within that's very hard to identify. So in Yavne, they devised a method to uh, ferret them out by the 19th blessing. So we know the Shmon Esrei, or the Amidah, is the prayer that was established by the men of the Great Assembly about four to 500 years earlier. Now it's called the Shmona Esrei because it has 18 blessings. But if you actually count in your seder today, you'll find that there's 19 blessings because and one of them was added three or four hundred years after they were initially instituted in Yavne by Shmuel Hakatan, one of the scholars of Yavne, and that was done specifically to uh, curse out the Judeo Christians. And thus, what they would do is they would, if someone that they suspected was a Judeo-Christian, they'll say, Oh, why don't you go lead the services? Lead the services? Ah, I'm a little nasally today, my throat's hurting. Okay, tomorrow, same thing. If they continually refuse, you know that they're hiding something. Because people will be very resistant uh, to curse themselves out. And that really uh, is an example of, of a general effort that they had to really cleanse the religion and the leadership and the people of any of these foreign ideas that had infiltrated over the past couple hundred years. The, the Sadducees. They were disenchanted with the people. They chose their stripes. They either became Romans or Jews. The Hellenists, all these other groups died out because, uh, in part, of these efforts of the sages of Yavna to standardize uh, and to clarify and to, to create unity amongst the people. Now, one of the major problems that they had was uh, in the matters of halacha. In the pre- preceding hundred years, there's a proliferation of machlokas, of halachic disagreements. If you remember, we spoke about Hillel. When Hillel came and established his yeshiva, it was the first time that the Sanhedrin almost was split in two. Uh, one of them called Shammai, one called Beishil, different uh, different houses of scholarship. And that allowed for uh, schism, not schism, but at least a diversity of halacha amongst those two schools. And in the ensuing hundred years, this became a big problem, because, you know, for the 1400 years of our history, all the Jews, well, Jews that were observant, which was almost everyone, of Torah law, there was unified, a, a unified corpus of practice. There was no really room where one Jew behaved like this, and one Jew behaved like that. And that's why at this time, uh, they were concerned with the the fact that observance was spiraling out of control, and many Jews, you know, even neighbors would have different practices because this guy came from the house of Hillel, he came from the house of Shammai. their friends and their colleagues, and they studied together. But in certain areas of halacha, this person would render something kosher, and he would render it not kosher. So what do he do? Could he eat by their house? Could you eat from? What if they want to lend you a pot? You want to borrow a pot? You don't know. You gotta know which pot is this? this pot is. This? That pot is this? That pot, the fact the Talmud says is that what they would do is, whenever uh, one of them would lend a pot to the other, they would lend them a pot that doesn't have any of the questions with regards to the other people. They would label the pot. This is a pot for only for people of Beis Shlamah. This is a pot only for people of Beis Hillel. <laughs> which really creates a problem. It's it, there, there's a little bit of, you know, we're one nation. One nation united under Torah and under God. And the fact that we have differences in opinion is a major problem. So, the Talmud tells us in the book of Erevin, for three and a half years at Yavna, they debated the two schools that are now united in Yavna, B'Shamis Hillel, they would debate, who is the halacha like? Is Allah halacha like us? is a halacha like us? Of the hundreds of disagreements, they had unbelievable debate and dialogue and narrative and discussion to figure out which one is the halacha following. And this was for three and a half years. And how did they resolve it? They resolved it because they heard a heavenly voice, a heavenly booming voice declared, both the words of Eshameh and the words of Hillel are the words of a living God. They're both true. They're both Torah. But the halacha follows Beis Hillel. And indeed, this is emblematic of one of the major efforts that they undertook at Yavne to create unified halacha. There was one point, like we mentioned earlier, where there was a, a little bit of a breakdown in Yavne. The Romans got suspicious, and in order to kind of fly under the radar, they decided to split up. And this creates an interesting dynamic because we know there's very specific laws regarding uh, majority you have a Sanhedrin and there's a question, a halacha question, we follow the majority. So if you have 70 scholars saying one way and one saying the other, or even 50 and 21, we always follow the majority. That's what the Torah says. Now, at this point in time, there was not a sufficient quorum in Yavneh to constitute a majority. And a very tragic episode happened here Uh Amongst, amongst the leaders of Yavne that really, I think, really underscores some of the tension that they were facing. And the 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 case that they were disagreeing upon is a very esoteric case. It was, what's the halacha with regards to uh, the purity and impurity of a certain oven? Now, in order, to, for, in order for something to be Uh, But to become pure or impure, it has to have the status of something which is fixed. So, for example, you want to make a vessel. You make a vessel, a vessel can become impure. Something that's just raw material can't become impure. So the question uh, arose with regards to a particular oven that got dismantled and was put together hastily. It was like it, it wasn't really formed together. So is it considered... A vessel that could become impure? Is it not considered a vessel? That was the debate. And they had an argument on the two leaders, Rabbi Yoshua on one end, he said that it was impure. Rabbi Eliezer, on the other hand, said it was pure. And that was the argument. They took a vote. And the vote followed the opinion of Rabbi Yoshua. Now, Rabbi Eliezer, he recognized that at this time, Yavna does not have a sufficient quorum. Because many of the scholars are elsewhere, and therefore he reasoned that I don't need to follow the rule of majority, because the rule of majority only apply when all of Sanhedrin is united. Now we have the groups spread out into different into different uh, cadres. Well, therefore I have to just stick by what I think is true. And the Talmud records that it really went, it really devolves in a, in a remarkable way. Rabbi Lezer was vigorously trying to defend his position and trying to argue that he was correct, that this kind of oven indeed cannot become impure. And no matter what he said, they didn't agree with him. And he started to do things that are really surprising. He started to utilize supernatural proofs to his position. First thing he did was, he said, he pointed to a tree that was outside. He says, this tree, if I'm right, let the tree prove it. And before the eyes of all the great sages, the tree gets uprooted and it moves far away, it replants itself, and he's like, oh, there you see it, I'm right. And they say, I'm sorry, that's not enough proof. You have to prove it to us by convincing us in matters of Torah. You can't be such a proof. So he continued and he said, if the halachas like me brought them to a river, the river was flowing one direction, he says, if, let the water prove that I'm right, the water starts to flow in the opposing direction. They say, well, that's not a proof. He continues and says that if the wor- if the truth is like me, let the walls of the base measure, so the walls of the house of scholarship prove it, and before you know it, the walls start to cave in. So now we have this kind of standoff. We have the walls are about to collapse upon all the scholars. And then Rabbi Yeshua, who's arguing with Rabbi Eliezer, he says, he starts screaming at the walls. And he says, listen, you have Torah scholars fighting about matters of, of Torah. Why are you getting involved? So the walls are a little bit, you know, they're, you know, they're stuck. What to do? Rabbi Eliezer is commanding them to collapse. Rabbi Yeshua is commanding them to remain erect. So they just stayed like this. Uh, they just stayed kind of leaning halfway here, halfway there because they couldn't decide. How do you, how, how do you make, uh, you know, how do you determine one way or the other? And lastly, lastly, he says, if I am right, let they prove it from heaven. And a booming prophetic voice announces, why are you guys not questioning the position of Rabbi Yezer, the position of Rabbi He's the greatest scholar of his day. The halacha follows him wherever he, whatever he says. And again, they're not impressed. And they said the famous verse in Deuteronomy: "Lobashamayim, Torah is not in the heavens. The Umayyad gave us the Torah. Moshe came from to the heavens, got the Torah, brought it to us. It's our Torah. Our Torah says, rabam You follow the majority, and even if the majority is wrong, that's what's right." What's right is to follow the majority and therefore it doesn't matter what they say in the heavens. It matters what we say here. And Rabbi Lezer refused to capitulate because he believed that he did not need to follow the laws of majority rules when there was an insufficient quorum. And this was a tremendous danger because Rabbi Lezer, he's he's an unbelievable character, the greatest scholar, and this particular Point in history is a time where we're trying to end dissent and we're trying to reach consensus and we're trying to clarify Machlokas, and Urbelez was refusing to accept the rule of the majority. Now, of course, he had his reasons to do that. He said, Well, the, the, the majority won't apply here. But still, this is a major problem and this is a major challenge to the primary to the primary objective and aim of. Of the scholars of Yavna, that's to decrease dissent and increase uh, uniformity uh, in observance. And they made a decision. uh Rabbi Damlil oversaw this to excommunicate him. And this is a, you know, it's 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 a poison pill basically. You know, you, you use it very sparingly. Uh, but they wanted to make a stand to show that Torah and the Jewish people and unity, that is the order of the day. And that trumps everything. And even someone like Rabbi Yezer, even the greatest scholar of his time, the Chacham, the, the, one of the Torah leaders of Yavne, he cannot undermine that. What did they do? They sent Rabbi Akiva to go inform him. The laws of someone who's excommunicated is that they no one could be in close contact with them. That the sit if the sit for away, etc. He, Rabbi Akiva, put on black clothing and wore, um, and went and sat four amos away from him, so about eight feet away from him. Rabbi Led says to Rabbi Akiva, Why are you doing this? Why are you behaving so, so, um, uh, unusually, so strangely? And he tells him. Rebbe, my teacher, Rebbe Lezer was Rebbe Teva's teacher, I think that your friends are removing themselves for you. Uh, as is the manner of uh, someone who is mourning, Rebbe Lezer ripped his clothing, took off his shoes, sat on the ground and started crying. The story continues initially, that when this happened, when Rebbe Lezer was informed of his new status Robert Gumleel was on a boat on a ship and the water started getting very choppy and very erratic and instantly Robert Gumleel knew that the reason why the Almighty is about to you know cause the ship to capsize is because of what he did to rebeliazer and he's prayed to God as follows we master master of the world dolovido it's known that I did not do this for my own honor. I wasn't trying to stand up and say, look at me, I have, I'm the leader, I'm the nasi of the people in Yavne. And I didn't, I didn't do this not for the honor of my, the house of my family, which is the family of the princes. I did this for your honor, for, and that, and, and in order that there should not proliferate disagreements amongst the Jewish people. When he said that, the water calmed down. Now there's an interesting wrinkle to this. If you remember, Rebbe Yezer is actually the brother-in-law of Rabbi Gamliel. So, Blesser's wife, she's the sister of Rabbi Gamaliel, and she knows the power of her husband. Remember, the husband has unbelievable powers. He's, he's able to pray, and the walls start collapsing. He prays, and, you know, he says something, and, and nature responds. Nature is beholden to him, is submitted to him, not the other way around. If he wants to prove his point, the water starts flowing the opposite direction. Now, she knows that who's the most vulnerable person in the world now, that's her brother, Rabbi Leo. Because if Rabbi Ezra wants, he prays to God, and he's not going to make it out. He's not going to make it. So, every day, she would stop him before he did the Tachnun prayer. Tachnun prayer is a prayer where you lay down on your, on your arm. And the reason why you lay down on your arm is it's a prayer of, of, of sadness. When, when you kind of beseech God out of sadness. So, every day, when Rabbi Ezra was praying, she would make sure he didn't say that prayer. There was one day, she was under the impression that it was Rosh Chodesh. On Rosh Chodesh, you don't say that prayer anyhow. Now, at that time, Rosh Chodesh depended on the moon. moon. So sometimes sometimes it would be day uh, 29 and 30, and sometimes it would be day 30 and 31, right? Or or day 31, it would be either a 29-day month or a 30-day month. So what's the first day of the next month? Either day 30 day, day 31. So she was under the impression that it was Rosh Chodesh. Truth is, it wasn't Rosh Chodesh. The following day was Rosh Chodesh. So she didn't stop him from saying that prayer. She, he said that prayer, and right away she, she realized what was wrong, that he said the prayer, and she said, that's it, my brother's dead. And indeed, they heard a shofar from the other end of town, that indeed, Rabbi Domleil had died. But this story, this story really shows us a, a, the character of these people. Rabbi Eliezer was one of the wealthiest people around. Uh, he could have utilized his power to have a revolt. Not only was he the greatest Torah scholar, he was the wealthiest as well. And he accepted the decision of his peers and he seated. He, he, He just sat down on the ground, tore his clothing, took off his shoes, and acted as a mourner because he accepted their decision and also stood up for the greater good. Recognizes also that the Unity of the people superseded his own individual honor. Never would, did he insult anyone, never did he disparage anyone, never did he cast into suspicion the scholarship or the leadership or the piety of his, so to speak, foes. On the other hand, look at the just the strength of character of the people who put Rebbe Lezer into a, they banned him, They had communicated him. And they knew how dangerous he was. They knew how volatile he could potentially be. And they knew he was the greatest Torah Torah scholar. And indeed, much of the success of Yavne was due to his greatness. He knew more Torah than anyone. You want to assemble all the Torah disagreements and clarify them? Who do you go to? You go to Rabbi Eliezer. But they realized there was something even greater than that, and that's unity. Now, he didn't recant. Very interesting. Someone's wondering, okay, you're put into... Excommunication. And indeed, for the rest of his life, he was excommunicated. And the question is, why did he not recant? Why did he not say, I, I accept the position of the scholars? And indeed, that, that oven is impure. Well, the reason why he did it, he did not accept it, uh, was was because he actually believed that. and He had something to stand upon. He believed that that was not a Sanhedrin, that he was mandated to follow the majority because some of the Sanhedrin was elsewhere. And, therefore, and, and that was indeed uh, part of his greatness was that he had the strength of character to stick to what he believed was correct and what he believed was, from a Torah perspective, correct, even if it meant that he had to live a life of isolation. Now, there's an interesting epilogue to his story when he was very sick. So the Talmud records a series of narratives, what happened when Rabbi Lezzar was very sick. And his students came to visit him, Rabbi Kiva, amongst others. So they had to sit far away from him. They were to sit four amas away from him. And they were talking to him, and they said to, they said to him, so he tells them, well, why, why are you here? He says, when we here? We're here to study Torah. He says, well, why haven't you come till now? We did not have any time. We're too busy. So Rebbe responds to them, I will be shocked if any one of you dies a natural death. Which terrified everyone in the room. They're not going to die a natural death. So Rebbe the greatest of his students, he says, well, what about my death? So he tells them, your death is even worse than everyone else in the room. And he gives this amazing speech. He picks up his two arms and places them on his heart and he says to them, woe unto you. My two arms are like veritable Torah scrolls that are rolled up. What he's essentially lamenting in the fact is that he's a Torah scroll. Everything in Torah he had, in fact his teacher described him as a pit that's totally sealed, nothing gets lost from it, but it was rolled up. Because of the circumstances of this episode, he was forced to not go and let his Torah go forth. And that's an indictment on the entire Jewish nation, especially the scholars. They didn't take Torah from him because the Torah scroll was rolled up. And he continues, I studied a lot of Torah from my teachers, right? my great teachers, primarily Rabbi Yochanan Zakai. But I did not diminish from their Torah nothing any more than a, a plier of makeup from a, uh, from a vial. You take a little, you want, you want to dip the plier of makeup into a, a vial. The vial lasts for five years, but you only take a little few drops out of it. That's what I diminished from my teachers. And when I taught Torah, it was the same way. I taught Torah and I had so much Torah to teach but the amount of Torah that was absorbed by my students was the same amount well, with respect to how much Torah I actually know was the same amount as if you have a dog lapping up water from the water from from the sea the sea is so vast you know the dog diminishes the sea a little bit but really it's almost insignificant not only that he starts to talk about the, the teachings that he has in the laws of leprosy is 300 laws no one asked me about them and in the laws of, uh, of magic. There's a prohibition against magic in the Torah. One of the popular forms of magic of the time was the collection of cucumbers magic. Not very popular today. But what they would do is uh, they would have some sort of magic that would take all the produce of a field and, a, and bring it all to the center of the field. And that was a a very obscure law of Torah, right? The laws of Torah, of magic to cucumbers. If I said that, you would say it doesn't make any sense. There is no magic, and certainly not about cucumbers. But it's a very obscure law, and it says, I have 300, and maybe, according to one opinion of the Talmud, it was actually 3,000 various laws, and none of my students ever asked me about them, with the exception of Rabbi Akiva, that once we were walking, and Rabbi Akiva asked me, teach me about this magic, so they're walking past the field, he said something, and instantly all the cucumbers collected to the middle. Uh, he said something else, and the whole thing was, uh, uprooted. Either way, that, that was his speech. And it's very sad. It's just a little bit of a s- sad tinge to it. I guess it's maybe even tragic. The fact that there was so much potential of Torah that was, uh, not uh, not tapped into properly. And the Gemara recalls that, or recounts that they started peppering him with questions, all these various questions about specifically the most complicated laws, laws of purity and impurity. And in the midst of answering one question, they, they asked him about a particular uh, item. He said it's tahar, it's pure. And as he said that he died. And all of the assembled realized that this was a, a, really an omen of his purity himself, that his soul departed with purity. And right away, instantly, they determined to undo, to rescind the nether to rescind the, the etzim Uh Rabbi Yeshua, his colleague, he did that, and that indeed uh, ended that episode. But this really shows uh, the commitment that the sages of Yavne had towards eliminating dissension, even if it meant bottling up the great style of Rabbi Eliezer, that that was not as important as uh, ensuring unity in halacha. Now Rabbi Eliezer himself has a great legacy in, in Torah. In fact, his name is mentioned in the Mishnah staggering 319 times and the talmud tells uh, when talmud gives a a, a um, the talmud gives a eulogy of rabbelezzer by saying that when rabbelezzer died the torah scroll was hidden away it's almost as if we had a torah scroll when he was alive cuz anything you want to do any law any law any law you could possibly imagine thousands of laws with regards to cucumber magic you would go to him the torah scroll open the torah scroll and ask it once He died, that Torah scroll was lost. But we could say that someone like Rabbi Yezer, we learned the greatness of Rabbi Yezer and Rabbi Damlil as well, but really the whole assembly of Yavne, where as someone like Rabbi Yezer who was instrumental towards the organization of the Torah at at the very vulnerable time period of Yavne, uh, but they were willing to sacrifice that relationship, compounded by the fact that it was his brother-in-law, uh, in, to, in order to ensure that the Jewish people as a nation and the role of the Sanhedrin remains unchallenged. Yavne and the Sanhedrin continued for hundreds of years. And the next time period, after the Temple's destroyed, is one of the greatest time periods for Torah Greatness and proliferation and dissemination in history. That's when you wrote the Mishnah and the Talmud. Those things could not have been written if not for this episode. If we didn't have the role of the Sanhedrin and the role of the Nasi uh, secure, Rabbi Judah the Prince is the great-grandson of, of Rabbi Damliel. He was one who got all the rabbis together, a great unifying project to write down the Mishnah. That doesn't happen unless... Everyone knows, and this story is just blazed into everyone's collective memory, that Sanhedrin, the the body, the same body that was founded by Moses, this is an ancient body, this body trumps the individuals of the body. And that's why, and and indeed, Torah is not in the heavens, the Torah is here. We are specifically in the seat of the Sanhedrin.